Hello everyone, today we have Fran Schuer on the show. Fran is a psychotherapist and author of a series of articles titled Why Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11. Fran draws on her knowledge of psychology to explain why it is so uncomfortable for us to even entertain certain ideas when they threaten our existing worldview. This obviously has an application that is far broader than 9-11 itself. In this interview, Adam and I asked Fran all about that before going on to quiz her on the psychopathic mindset. How can we understand individuals that view the very value of human life in an utterly different way? I would thoroughly recommend reading the series. It's linked to below. Now here's Fran starting us off by explaining her background training as a therapist. Well, first of all, I majored in the sciences as my undergraduate degree. I have an undergraduate degree, bachelor in the sciences. And I thought I was going in that direction to probably teach science. Uh, but um, my, I didn't go that way. I, I was very drawn to psychology and wind up getting a master's, uh, a particular type of master's, where it took me in the realm of psychology. And then uh, I um, figured out why later is because I had a lot of healing to do. <laughs> and of my own healing. And uh, so uh, as the, the years went by, I discovered what's called primal therapy. And it's, it's known to people as primal scream. And there was a book put out by author Janov called The Primal Scream. And it really um, hit home with a lot of us as a very deep way to approach our healing. Um, now, it's a misnomer because primal does not mean screaming. Primal means paying attention to your body sensations and your own emotions about current events and following those emotions, following those body sensations uh, and seeing where they take you. And they will eventually take you to something in your past. Uh, for example, if you're very angry with an authority for some reason, if you follow that anger and what's underneath that anger, which are the more vulnerable feelings, you will eventually get to um, uh, uh, anger and hurt and terror with perhaps a father or a mother, you know, and that's where the healing is, is to go back to the origin of those emotions. Um, so I did that for, a few years primal therapy and interestingly enough many of us in primal therapy were spontaneously having spiritual uh, experiences I know people who are having out-of-body experiences and they were having uh, other types of spiritual experiences but author Janov the the founder of that therapy did not believe in spiritual experiences he believed there were uh, uh, just a, a manifestation of our pain that we carried from our childhood. Um, so, but I had a very profound spiritual experience in a dream when I was concentrating very, very hard on trying to get to the core of my pain as I was doing this therapy. And that spiritual experience led me in the direction of, of a... Um, uh, a spiritual path and this particular one was 
uh, Kundalini. And uh, I, I was searching desperately for a teacher. I found a teacher who, who in his presence, I had the same uh, unitive experience of all of creation that I had in my dream. And I, that's how I knew he was my teacher. So I was involved in that for quite a number of years. And that in itself led me back to psychotherapy, interestingly enough. Um, and this time I found Stanislav Grof, who, would, who he and his wife had developed holotropic breathwork, which was almost the same as primal therapy. It was very similar in that it's a very intense regressive therapy in which we regress back to our traumas and we release all of the feelings, all of the emotions that we could not have at that time. It was not safe to have those emotions and feelings. It's almost like an exorcism. We, we, uh, we uh, remove the feelings and the emotions that we're carrying from our childhood traumas. And, um, and, but interestingly enough, Stanislav Grof took the spiritual experiences very seriously. So it was something very easy for me to resonate with. And uh, so that's how I got involved in the clinical work that I did. I finally realized that I was um, healed enough, you know, not healed completely, but healed enough that I could help other people heal. And so we started working as a psychotherapist. Uh, so that's how I got into the whole realm of psychotherapy. I got into it because I needed to heal myself. And I uh, did some very deep healing, uh, deep healing that most people would never even think of doing because it's so arduous. Uh, but um, it has, I'm a completely different person because of it. I'm a much freer person because of it. And um, I'm still healing. Of course, we're all still growing. We never stop, you know. So, but that's how I got into that. And then when 9-11 came along, uh, I was shocked like everybody else of the whole uh, event and then uh, but I I did have on the day of 9-11 as it was happening it came out of my mouth I don't think this could have happened without somebody knowing about it and allowing it to happen so intuitively I was suspicious from the beginning I pause um, you there yes Brian, and just yeah. rewind um, to the 10th of September 2001 yes. and yes. everything before that is I, we could actually just talk for an hour about everything you've just said but we're going to sure. resist that temptation and talk about the, the geopolitics but throughout yeah. the the decades through the i'm guessing 70s 80s 90s right uh, that you're doing this psychotherapeutic healing work obviously yes. a lot's going on around you in society you're going through different yes. presidents and there's the reagans and the iran contras and the clintons there's a war in iraq and yugoslavia Right. To September 10th, 2001, what's your sense of the United States government and its role in the world, whether it's a, is it a for, an imperial force in your mind or something that's generally benevolent? Or what, how did you conceptualize it prior to 9-11? I knew that the U.S. was not benevolent around the world. Uh, I, um, I had worked in the early 1980s in the uh, campaign for a nuclear weapons freeze was very much a peace activist, and um, uh, I knew that we were doing some harm around the world. I can't remember how much I knew at that time, but I definitely did not think we were the, 
the exceptional nation on the planet that never did harm to anyone else. Um, I fully believe that we should not have nuclear weapons, that we should not be uh, interfering with other people's governments, uh, that sort of thing. But I didn't know in detail a lot at that on September 10th. Okay, so that that's great and leads us into then. So you have this initial feeling that this couldn't have happened about someone knowing. And how did that progress for you then, both in terms of acquiring information about the event and also in terms, I suppose, of your psychological reaction, maybe resistance to that information, perhaps going back and forth in your mind? What was that like in the time after 9-11? Well, first of all, I believe the official story, uh, official story, <laughs> that it was uh, uh, that, you know, 19 Muslims uh, attacked us. I believe what we were told. Uh, although I found myself saying, uh, uh, believing as many progressive type people do, that it was blowback because I knew enough to know that we were not innocent in the world, you know. Um, so I, I thought it was probably blowback. I would like to have talked to Osama bin Laden and said, why did you do this? You know, uh, what's going on? Tell me your reasoning for this, you know? Uh, so, um, uh, and I was instrumental in helping people, uh, speakers, professors go to churches, uh, to explain to people why they hate us, you know, cause that was the, that was what we were told. They attacked us because they hate us. So most people said, why would they hate us? We're the wonderful nation on earth, you know, but, and so I was wanting these professors to go and talk to these people in churches and tell them probably that there was this blowback, you know, from the things we've done in the world. So that's kind of where I was at that time. Um, and then, of course, uh, someone handed me uh, a VHS and then the book, uh, Nafisa Med's uh the um oh gosh it's war on truth war on freedom war on freedom yeah. war on freedom and of course i'm again i'm shocked as everyone is when they hear any evidence that uh, uh contradicts what our government told us i'm i'm shocked and i'm shocked enough to start following it up you know uh so i uh, ask people to come over and look at this film with me and discuss it with me and let's try to figure out what's going on. Just like today, we're trying to figure out what's going on with this coronavirus. What's, we're trying to figure it out. I was involved in getting friends to come over to my house and let's look at this, let's figure this out, you know, what's going on. And so I just continued from there studying um, and uh, I must have read that book uh, the War on Freedom four times and made a summary of it and went to my representative, Diana DeGette, talked to her executive director, and he actually told me, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I, I had a bunch of material that I gave to, to him to give to Diana DeGette, and he said, he looked at me right in the eye and he said, don't think that I don't know what our CIA is capable of. Now, I never got such a forthcoming 
<laughs> remark from her office ever again, and he stopped working there. Someone else came on as her executive director. And that was the last forthcoming remark I got from that office. From, from then on, I only got uh, stonewalled, you know. So I tried going the appropriate channels. I tried educating my representative, and I got uh, uh, severely stonewalled by her after that. Even though I was being very professional, very uh, evidence-based in what I would present to her, you know. Okay, so you're going through this process in yourself, and perhaps you're meeting some psychological resistance there, or you're reading and rereading the book. At some point, you're going to see the information about the towers coming down by explosives, which kind of takes it to another level in terms yes, of plausibility right. and the scale of the thing and could they really do that because uh, you know allowing allowing it to happen is one thing but you know having skyscrapers rigged with the biggest controlled demolitions ever is, is taking it to a whole other level and also you're talking to people and you're meeting uh, resistance in them okay now in in my experience i, I was very much interested in 9-11 truth right from the get-go um and i would obviously meet utterly incredulous reactions in the people around me just didn't want to know about it but that was very surprising to me because i was very young and up until that point i had shared a worldview with everyone around me i'd never met anyone really where i had a significant divergence of opinion on what the world is so this is like a new experience for me and hitting walls of like but what why are we suddenly like not able to communicate why can't why can't you step over here and see this from my perspective and of course you're kind of coming into this up and running right because you maybe could anticipate from your psychotherapeutic work that people are not going to take kindly necessarily to this information so what was that like you know both wrestling with your own internal um trials around it and then meeting that meeting those barriers and blocks and other people mm -hmm. yeah i i was also shocked when i first heard this uh contradictory information uh, there's this book, Nafisa Med's book, and the uh, uh, video that I'd gotten before that. And I spent, I don't know how long, but maybe a couple of weeks of sleepless nights, you know, not being able to sleep well. I was, I was uh, very stressed. I was upset about this information. It was scary, you know, it's scary information because as I have started absorbing this information, I could see, it was fearful, I was fearful. It's like, wow, if that's true, then they could do anything. They, whoever they are, whoever did this, they could do anything if they can do this, you know? And I was full of fear. Um, and, um, and it lasted for a while that, you know, I had trouble sleeping and then you know, I got over that. Um, and, but I just kept pressing on um, and looking at more and more information. Then when I finally ran across a video that, that was stating that the World Trade Center towers came down at free fall, now we know that's not quite true. Now we know from the measurements, it came down at about two thirds of free fall. But, but nevertheless, when I heard free fall and I saw building seven come down, that changed everything. It was not just allowing it to happen. That ha this had to be orchestrated. It was very obvious, you know. So, um, so that did take me to the another another level of 
of this issue of what was going on. Um, and then I didn't really know from my psychological background that people would be very resistant to this. Uh, I really, uh, I don't know, I must have just assumed that people were going to be rational and they were going to hear the information, they were going to be upset like I was, and they'd get over it and they would, uh, they would see the evidence and they would change their worldview. So I must have just assumed that people would uh, look at evidence and, uh, 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 and easily, easily change their worldview about what happened on 9-11. But I was wrong. And what shocked me as much as anything was all the resistance I ran into. <laughs> so, so it was, and so what I started doing then, because I was so surprised at people's resistance, that I started being like a scribe. I would write down as soon as I could get to a piece of paper, I would write down these spontaneous remarks that people made to me uh, that describe their resistance. You know, for example, one good example is a friend of mine, we were riding in the car together, and she said, Fran, you cannot expect anyone to listen to evidence that would turn their world upside down. And so I just wrote down all those spontaneous, word for word, those spontaneous events, those spontaneous statements. Uh, and interestingly enough, with that particular person, uh, I, I waited for a little while, we chatted for a little while after that, and I said, you know, I was very interested in that statement you just made a little while back uh, about listening to uh, evidence. And would you repeat that statement for me? And she couldn't remember what she had said. Interesting. It's interesting and what people so, spontaneously say. Very, yes, all of this was very interesting to me. Uh, and so I would write down, I had a whole page full of these spontaneous uh, reactions that people would give me. And so I didn't know, I had no plan of doing anything with it. I was just writing them down just as almost like a diary to see to what I heard. This is what I heard today, you know. And then eventually they were used in my series. Okay, because that, that reaction, it, it's not without wisdom, right? Because over the years, I've, um, I've come to think maybe it's a good thing that people do have a certain resistance to their worldview shattering. Mm -hmm. okay, and, and, you know, psychotherapeutically, we might say that because there's, there's two reactions people can have to encountering 9-11, right? One is to put up the wall of resistance and maintain their worldview. Um, and the other is to leap in with both feet and then start potentially falling and falling and falling until yes. they land on the flat earth. And yes. what I mean by that is just going right down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And right. I think for a lot of us, uh, we do have a period where the world kind of falls apart. And yes. then it's not obvious to me how I managed to reassemble it into, okay, this, not that. But when I sort of seriously got into this about 10 years ago, reading more about U.S. geopolitical history and things, I think there was a year where I just floundered around. And I just, mm -hmm. I didn't know where to look. You know, Satanic Pedia Farm Networks, uh, The Reptilians. Uh, mm -hmm. Because... The first book I read on this was um, actually just prior to 9-11. It was one of the David Icke's books. And I, I read it purely because I'd just finished school and I wanted something that challenged my conventional narratives. And I thought, this is like mad stuff. This is great. The whole world is different to what I thought. I want to read this. <laughs> um, but to me, everything in the book was so outrageous that, that I had no real way to distinguish 
one from the other. So that the CIA traffics drugs wasn't all that much less outrageous to me than the queen being a shape-shifting reptilian, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. the, the idea of the CIA trafficking drugs was just like, I mean, that was just the craziest thing. That's absolutely true, of course. And like now it's, yeah. it's uncontroversial, but you know, you can coming from, you know, um, a time where my, my image of America is what you see on the movies, you know, it's like Hulk Hogan and you know, all that kind of thing. Um, that was so far. So there can be this fracturing. And then I think for some people that can carry on being a problem and a kind of conspiracy psychosis can set in. Yes. So we see it like there's either too much resistance or there's a complete dissolution. Um, I'm interested to ask a bit more about your interactions with uh, people then um, in terms of where they've been productive, maybe what I suppose, what constitutes being productive as well, because not, um, not everyone who looks at this information goes off and becomes a hardcore truth activist. Right. So, uh, you know, what, what constitutes a productive interaction in terms of, um, what outcome are we looking for when we talk to people about not just 9-11 truth, but maybe suggesting that the state commits more crimes than is generally acknowledged in general. Um, and I suppose also on that second point then of, of the opposite side of the coin, which I suppose I think like truth movements don't address so much, is what happens with the danger of someone's worldview just shattering mm-hmm. and then going into really far out conspiracy land, a kind of conspiracy yes. psychosis. How, what, what do you make of all that? I, I definitely think that's uh, that does happen, and it is a danger. I had one uh, activist who was uh, coming to our monthly meetings at one point who told me once he uh, I was driving him somewhere and he said I have to drop out of this. I can't come to any more of these meetings. He says I'm in. He says I'm really having some very serious problems. And he looked at me, he says, because of 9-11, he says, it's serious. I'm having serious problems. And he had to drop out. And I said, fine, go do what you need to do. You know, get yourself uh, back to a sane state. Uh, I still don't know what kind of problems he was having. He was just letting me know. Um, uh, other times people, I think, yes, they, they um, start... Uh, connecting too many dots, you know, dots that don't need to be connected. Um, uh, If they, once they see something nefarious that looks like it comes from our government, then they jump to conclusions. They, they leap to conclusions. For example, I mean, take the coronavirus right now. I don't know. I mean, we're all trying to figure this out, just like I was trying to figure out 9-11 at the time. We're all trying to figure out what's going on here around this coronavirus? You know, uh, do we just strictly believe our authorities? Do we question our authorities? Do we listen to the other, other experts who are giving us different information? We're all trying to figure it out. But there will be people, and I suspect people who, uh, many more people who have been in the Nylum Truth Movement because they have been able to see what uh, authorities are capable of. <laughs> you know, they will jump very quickly to assuming that this um, uh, virus is man-made, was uh, made to, uh, for some nefarious purpose, uh, was accidentally released from, a, was, a, was purposefully released from a lab. Now, it may have been, I don't know, 
but I can see people leaping to conclusions because of their preconceived notions. Um, well, let's say even if people had uh, grew up in a family where uh, the parents, uh, the father or the mother, were manipulative and lied and uh, were uh, very toxic in this way, well, I think those people would also tend to jump, leap to conclusions that our authorities, which we often see as parental figures, are doing the same thing. So, um, so yes, so, so I think it's a very great danger that people will not take each incident, each thing they hear individually and look carefully at the evidence, but they will leap to conclusions, they will they will uh, rush down the rabbit hole. They will connect too many dots. I think that's a very great danger. Okay. So this is a big interest of mine because we didn't have these problems in the 90s because everyone watched either the BBC or Fox or CNN and yeah. everyone had the same worldview. And now yeah. I'm noticing on my Facebook, you know, I have um, friends who are posting about how Corona comes from a lab. I have friends who say, well, I don't know about that, but look, at it's going to devastate the economy. And others saying, no, no, we all need to stay indoors and do what the government tells us. And others saying, you know, it's, it's uh, Bill Gates' plot to take over the world on behalf of the Rockefellers. Mm -hmm. and, um, I have sympathy of all those positions, actually, you know. So I, I personally transitioned from a place of, like, I wouldn't say certainty about the world, but no real reason to question it as a teenager prior to 9-11. And, and it, well, 9-11 for me just coincided with um, a kind of, uh, spiritual and political awakening okay so it was just at that time anyway I was starting to question the world and then then it happened and that accelerated everything mm -hmm. so I moved into a place and the natural thing to do is to look for another kind of certainty right and say okay it's yes. you know get, get, get a meta theory that ties everything up and I think initially I was partly I was initially drawn to people that offered that um, and also the people that offer that tend to be much bigger. So if you type in 9-11 truth on YouTube, well, certainly 10 years ago, the only man that's going to pop up is Alex Jones. Because he, and he, I wouldn't say had a total meta theory, but he's got a pretty big meta theory about the new world order agenda. And, and, and he has gone off into, in recent years, into how it's all sort of controlled by otherworldly forces, a bit, sort of, a bit like David Icke. And, and David Icke, his meta theories are so grand that they go back, you know, and I read a few of his books and, um, go back to the origins of the universe sometimes and it starts explaining the conspiracy at that point and how it plays out from there and that's wonderful you know but it's not the place i've come to not just in terms of uh geopolitics in other areas too the more i step into something the more i come to recognize how little i know and how much of a mystery things are yeah, you know and right. I'm, I'm grounded in uncertainty and mm -hmm. uh, that's why i i labeled a lot of my stuff uh, deep state because I find looking out into the world, I don't find a, a consistent explanation of, oh, it's all about this. I find, yeah, but whatever we can say, we can say that events on the surface, the appearance is moved by the currents in the deep. And it was also for me, that was a mirror of uh, explanations of my own consciousness spiritually that I was interested in Eastern spiritual paradigms. But then I thought, well, you know, maybe it's a bit too reductionist to say, yeah, we're all one consciousness at the end of it, as they might. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it misses some of the nuance in there, but, what I can definitely say is that it's very deep. Like consciousness is not a boring thing. And if you go into it, it will just keep opening and opening and opening mm -hmm. up to infinity. So that like this idea of, of being grounded in mystery or being grounded in depth felt more <sighs> better to me. It, it felt like healthier 
and more mm-hmm. fulfilling and with more potential for growth and less room for dogma. But it's a harder thing to be grounded in and it's not what most people go for. And, and it's not as appealing, right? Like if I'm sure that if I had a certain narrative and just made videos explaining this is how the world works, uh, they would just get more hits than me saying, Ooh, I don't know, it's all a bit of a, but it's really deep, you know? And that's something that I have not um, come to reconcile in my own mind, really. That, that what I see as healthy is not necessarily what's attractive. And it's this need, this certainty addiction that human beings exist with. Yeah. So um, I'm sure there's a question in there somewhere, Fran, but anything you'd <laughs> like to comment on there, please go ahead. <laughs> Well, I'll comment too. <laughs> so I, um, I agree with you that it's a wonderful thing to be so secure in one's being that one can stay in, un- stay in uncertainty, you know, to not have to jump to conclusions. I think that's a very healthy thing. Uh, now, I'm wondering in my back of my mind too, is it if uh, uh, staying in, in uncertainty could also be an avoidance, you know, as well, an avoidance of, of, of uh, I mean, we don't want to be uncertain about some things, you know, like, for example, you know, maybe all the uh, uh, slaves that were lynched, you know, in America, in the South. Yeah. Did the we don't Holocaust want really to be uncertain about whether that is moral or not moral. Sure. You know, we, we, we have to, at some point, say, uh, because of this, I believe this. You know? And if, if something comes along that uh, refutes that belief, you know, some evidence comes along, then I will be open to changing my belief. But so far, you know what I mean? It's like it could yeah. be avoidance as well. I think you know, I have a lot of moral certainty, actually. Um, yes. Like, I'm quite, I find I'm quite moral absolutist, and I think that's sometimes a reaction to a world I see as being very moral, morally relativistic, okay? Like, we all kind of, we, maybe we didn't like the Iraq war, but we all got over it pretty quickly, okay? And, you know, the Labour Party was not um, disbanded uh, because it, it was involved in a genocide, and neither was the Republican Party, you know? So, so I find that, I'm, I'm disgusted by that kind of moral relativism as such, so I'm quite morally um absolutist it would be more on things like science and, and particularly history and what do we really know about this narrative uh, that i would be more of a sense of uncertainty but i think you're making a very good point there that there does need to be something of a juxtaposition because i'm not saying that oh, i have no idea you know what was behind the revolution in iran in 1953 no, it was the cia i know it was the cia right now <laughs> that could be a deeper story but no i'm pretty sure you know it was alan Dulles and the cia so um but if I then go to the deeper question, well, to what extent was he acting on behalf of the Rockefellers and was that for corporate reasons or a new world order agenda or this or the, then, then I have to go back into the uncertainty. And so will you go, right. further you go yeah, so in that, in that sense, sense right. I think it's a good point. That, about a until, until you have uh, hard evidence, you know, uh, if you saw a letter from Rockefeller uh, to the CIA, to Kermit Roosevelt or whomever, you know, saying we must do this and uh and then and here's why and then letters going back and forth if you had documentation then that's reason to believe that there was deep state actions there was you know there was uh there was a conspiracy there that's a reason to to uh say okay now i believe this unless someone can show me other documentation that this was not true you know uh so there has to be a point 
where you get off the uncertainty and say, okay, I believe this unless someone can show me other evidence, you know, um, at some point. Uh, but I think in general, it's very healthy and it shows a strong, what I call a strong sense of self to be able to stay in uncertainty and, um, and not have to jump to conclusions. I think that's one of the things that happened with the whole Pentagon issue uh, in the 9-11 Truth Movement is are we anchored, many of us anchored onto the belief that no plane could have caused that damage at the Pentagon. We anchored there. It was the first belief that we had and it made, it, it, it became our worldview. Uh, uh, and then we, along came evidence that lo and behold, it looks like a large plane really did hit the Pentagon. And we're going to resist that. We are, I think, if we're healthy uh, psychologically, we're able to be shocked because we're going to be shocked because we love our beliefs. We all do, you know, but then we're able to look at the evidence and say, wow, wow, I, I guess I was, I guess I was wrong, you know, and uh, one of the, so I think if we have a strong sense of self, uh, which is kind of hard to explain to people, but I think I can explain it then we're, we're much healthier and we can rest in that place of uncertainty until we have the evidence that shows us we can get off the fence now, you know? Um, and uh, so uh, that's, that's where I am on that. So uh, how does one get a strong sense of self? That's, uh, uh, that's another question, but we can go there if you want. Be quite happy to. I mean, one incident uh, in my life that was quite influential on this. I was at a meditative group oh, about 12 years ago now, and mm -hmm. I, I was across a dinner table after it had ended with a fellow who went on to be very good friends with. And I, I don't actually remember the content of the conversation. I always say we were talking about global warming. If I'm being honest, I don't entirely remember, but I think it might have been global warming. And mm -hmm. I took one position, he took another, mm -hmm. and we were discussing it back and forth. And then at some point, he let go of his position and embraced mine and just like opened up seeing the world in a totally different way. And I was um, flabbergasted at that way because that just doesn't happen. Yes, it just doesn't <laughs> like, happen. People, you grab onto your position and you hold on to your life and that's, that's yeah. how it works. And what I recognized um, in him was that there was a sense of self that didn't, um, that wasn't attached to opinions right it wasn't right. defined by and i've heard this like i tend to think about this in a sort of eastern metaphysical way like uh, cultivating a deeper sense of self that is like the consciousness in which thoughts are arising as opposed to the thoughts themselves um i've heard of the psychologist uh, donald winnicott talk about it as a developmental pattern where if we don't form good relationships with our parents then ideas themselves can become like parental figures so it, it yeah. has that level of assault and wounding to us when our ideas attacked it's it's you're yes. either attacking the self or you're attacking the parent or whatever and they must right. be defended and i think just the acknowledgement that's going on has to be the first step because it'd be a long journey to to address and maybe you have more more thoughts on this but i'll, I'll just leave you with this one to comment on that um i think what we don't talk about in any area of life where there are all these conflicts and that could be global warming it will be coronavirus as that emerges and it's definitely 9-11 and geopolitics is um, we don't think we should have to talk about how we talk about it and how we dialogue. We think we should just get on with discussing yeah. like, was it nanothermite in the towers? Or, you know, what did the CIA know about the hijackers? And I feel on all these things is that there is actually a necessity to step back 
and have a more formalized discussion where we include in that a recognition of our attachment patterns, of our reactive behavior, of our inability to not get frustrated with other people who are, are conflicting with us. Because if we don't have it in that slightly more formalized way, we're just gonna explode into reactive patterns every right. time we're, we're what, do, what do you think about like the, the you know the future or the like the, the necessity of some sort of form around the way we dialogue oh i think it's crucial uh uh i know people who have done very deep regressive work as i have done and they have really healed themselves very greatly and they still don't know how to communicate with people uh they still don't have constructive communication uh, uh with others and one of the things that changed my life, and I'm still learning, of course, is uh, one of the things that helped me with that was uh, the Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. Uh, he uh, basically, uh, this is a very uh, good system for learning how to communicate constructively with people. And my reading of it at this point is the first thing you do is you don't try to talk other people into what you believe you know but you empathize with where that person is coming from you, you first of all find empathy for that person and from that place then maybe you can have a dialogue with that person but i think those of us in the 9-11 truth movement uh have been notorious for very destructive communication you know and i can really relate to getting off of Facebook because I think people waste their times and their time and all this arguing and this toxic kind of dialogue that goes back and forth, you know, so, um, so I think learning how to communicate constructively is crucial to just living one's life, you know, just knowing how to relate to people in whatever context. Thanks for listening, everyone. Later in the week, I will publish another segment from our conversation of Fran, where she talks about both the psychopathic mindset and how people who aren't psychopathic can be induced into evil actions. 